I'm Dirk Hartung. And my name is Lauritz Gerlach. And this is the Legal Tech Podcast Series, an original series podcast production by Law Podcast Media. Our guest for this episode is Marty Manent. Marty is a professor at IE Law School in Madrid, while he himself is based in Barcelona, a serial legal technology entrepreneur and also a lawyer. Welcome, Marty. Hi, everyone. I'm very happy to be here to share my experience, my thoughts, and thank you for inviting me. Sure. Marty, I would like to start by talking a little bit about your personal backstory. In the late 90s, you were a lawyer with a big law firm, and then you left and founded Derecho.com, a legal services online provider with more than 240,000 customers. Can you give us a little bit of the story? How did that happen and what made you do that? Yes, I think that it was like the 1997 when I had the first access to internet. And the first thing that I did was just visiting the big website that at that moment were online. And after visiting these websites, I thought, okay, I'm a lawyer, I'm interested in law, and let me see what can I find online. And I couldn't find anything relevant for Spain. And what I decided is, okay, I will create a website where I just going to collect the links that I think that they are relevant. But I was studying at that moment. It was my master year. After this, I started working in a law firm that it's called Garrigues. At that moment, was Arthur Anderson. And after two years, probably I was earning more money from the webpage than from as a practice of law. And it was an amazing experience working in a big law firm. But at that point, I say, okay, I think that I must try the option to create a, a company because I thought that was just a moment that where I can create. Because what I don't want to do is when I was old, say, looking back and say, okay, what had happened if I just tried it? And that was my thought. Okay, I need to try. And I left the law firm. My father say, what are you doing? You are working in a big firm and you are leaving it and you are just starting a web page and what's this? That was the, the resume of the story where I just started the company. So when you left your big law firm, I'm sure that, as you pointed out, there was a lot of uncertainty about that. But something made you do it. And I'm just curious for those young legal entrepreneurs that are listening in, if there's something you could say to them that really helped you, say, during your first year or year and a half after you had made the decision? What was the most important for you in hindsight? Yeah, I think that there are some elements that make me make that decision. The first one was what I mentioned. I think that we only have one life and you need to try to live the life in the way and doing the things that you think that are interesting. And I thought that the best thing was trying to create my own business. And I would not looking back and say what had happened if I tried. it. For me, it was just a change moment. A relevant thing is that that time... I hadn't any child, I hadn't any debt, and I hadn't any mortgage to pay. I just only need to pay the rent. And probably that is also a good reason, because you can just live with no a lot of money. And on vacation, you just stay with your friends and with your partners, whatever. And probably that it's an easy moment to make a decision. But you have done it again afterwards, right? Yes. This was not the only company you would found. So what were some of the other ventures where you dipped your toe into the market and maybe approached it from a different perspective? Yeah, I think that after a lot of years, I have realized that I am a serial entrepreneur. When I was in the high school, I also created my first business, 
when I was 16 years old, it was a marketing company that we make like a small marketing campaign for the town of the companies where I live. And that was the first company that we created. It was not legally a company, but we have a lot of people collaborating with us. After this, when I was in the, in the university, I created my second big project. It was I made a TV show for the local network TVs in Catalonia. It was very, very interesting because we made like six chapters or seven chapters, and it was very, very funny. We shot some parts in discos in, in high school, and when you are in the university and you are a producer, it's very funny. But when I was ending the, the, the university and when I was starting the, the master, I discovered internet. And at that moment, I created the first page, but without thinking that that could be a, a business. Then that's where my previous business, then I started working in a law firm. And when I left the law firm, we stayed like 10 years working hard with, with Derecho.com. That means in Spanish, law.com. But we were always thinking about creating new services. And when you see that a new service could grow very, very fast or could be very big and needs money to grow by themselves. What we did is like making a spin-off of the companies and create new business. And also I'm participating in the big entrepreneur network in Barcelona. And also as a mentor, I could be connected with a lot of companies and also be as an investor of those companies. That is the way and probably without making a plan to become a serial entrepreneur. Okay. This story of you becoming a serial entrepreneur is special for many reasons, but it's also special because it happened in the European market. Typically, we hear these stories of serial entrepreneurs and startup founders from U.S. markets, but there were also early pioneers, especially in the legal tech startup space in Europe, such as yourself. What is your current assessment of the EU market for legal technology? And would you say that the EU is maybe lagging a bit behind behind the US, behind the UK and other markets, for example, the Asia Pacific region, as far as the legal tech startup space goes? Yeah, I see that the last two or three years, a lot of services and a lot of companies had born in, in the US uh, legal tech companies. We know that there are some like that has almost 20 years old, but the big boom, I think that it's like the last three or four years. The reason is because the market now is ready. And like 15 or 20 years ago, the market wasn't ready. That's the big reason. I think that here in Europe, and I could include also UK, we are a little bit behind the US. And that's true. And the reason, and under my point of view, is there is two reasons. The first one is, is regulation. That in, in the US, they have a little less regulation about the law. And also that the spirit of the people. If you have been ever in the United States, like being a new continent, being in a new country, it's like the people is a little bit different and they are ready to try new services. And that is very relevant. The people is ready to see new business. The people is ready to see new services. And probably here in Europe, because we have a long history, that it's not so common to the people. You must imagine that the people that is living in the United States, and also if you go to California, the mind is different. The mindset is different. Yes, we are a little bit behind, but the last three or four years, a lot of legal tech companies are growing in Europe and we are doing pretty well. All right. You talked a bit about regulation. I was wondering if you could go more into detail on which regulation you would think is most hindering to the progress of the legal tech startup scene. I would probably think about GDPR, but also other regulation of the legal profession that can make starting a business in that space harder. 
Yeah, I will point like the two big laws that affect the e-commerce or the digital service in, in Europe. Are, the first one is GDPR, that it's data privacy. And the second one is the digital service where regulate like e-commerce and also made available the social network service in Europe. But for me, that is not the big problem. For me, the, the big problem is like the regulation or the lobbies that there are inside Europe that limited a little bit the service that a company could provide. I will put an example. Probably a lot of us know DocuSign. DocuSign is a public company that grows in US, but that it's like a tech company that provides a very simple and a very stupid service, that it's digital signature. And why we don't have a big player in Europe? Under my point of view is because we have big lobbies like the public notaries or some registry lobbies that they want to keep part of the business. And they made some problems to companies to use like this kind of service, like digital signature that nowadays is everywhere and it's very easy. And I will more imagine like some lobbies that protect their own business and that they push regulation to be more complicated to create new kind of business. Now, instantly what comes to mind is unauthorized practice of law. That is a type of regulation that you would see on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean, but also, of course, in Europe. And unlike the US, Europe is not really trying new approaches to unauthorized practice of law. Some countries are very liberal about it, but others have very strict limitations in Europe. So isn't it also lawyers hindering the development of new services and maturity of the legal technology space? Yeah, absolutely. We as lawyers, we are also a lobby that we want to protect. We are like taxis. When I say that, a lot of my colleagues say, no, no, we are not like taxi drivers. We are lawyers. Yeah, you are a taxi driver because you want to protect your business and you don't want that some companies that they are not lawyers, they are trying to go inside your space, that it's the legal tech industry. And you want to protect your business. And that is like taxi drivers before when they fight over Uber or whatever. And yes, I agree on you that also the lawyers are part of the problem. Here, I think that it's very important to see what is more useful and what is more helpful for the citizens, for, for the, the end users. And probably they want to go to the digital legal service through internet, through mobile phones. And some of the companies or some of the, the law firms that provide service, they don't want to do that because they want to keep the whole business like going to a firm, charging for, for hours or whatever in this way, on this direction. And yes, I agree with that we also, the lawyers, are part of the problem in Europe. Now, many of your colleagues would argue that they are actually protecting the public. Not everybody should be providing legal services because people might not understand their quality. What would you say to that argument? Yeah, I agree that in some parts of the law, I agree that there might be something that protect the customers, the end users. I absolutely agree on that. But also, we must understand that, for example, in the US, some bar association are now making uh, like an obligation that the lawyers passed an exam or some test that they have digital capabilities to use the digital service. Because if you are as a lawyer, you don't use the right digital like service that you have online. For example, you probably you don't have the access to all the information. Then I could agree that in some parts, my colleagues and also I accept that for the customer, we could have some protection. But 
I think that it's more useful for the customers and the online users to use online service. And probably private companies that they are not law firms could provide an easy and more cheap and more affordable and more effective service. And that is the problem that some law firms are not ready to provide this kind of service. There are a lot of examples like claiming for a driving ticket or whatever that a law firm, they don't want to help an end user to climb for a parking ticket. And there were some solutions provided by private companies or like just a developer that helps the customer that receive a ticket at good claim for that ticket. That is a very simple, stupid example. Now, bringing it all back to Europe and the special role of our Union of Countries and a piece of legislation that you earlier on mentioned, which was e-commerce and the e-commerce directive. Within it, there is the country of origin principle, which basically means that when you are digital service, the regulation that is applicable to you is the one in your home country. And as I said a minute ago, we have some jurisdictions in the European Union that have a very liberal approach to unauthorized practice of law. Do you think that there will be competition between these liberal markets where, say, someone would go to a Scandinavian country and offer legal services in a digital way to the inhabitants of other countries? And how would the European Union as a whole deal with it? Yeah, I think that you mentioned the e-commerce directive that for me, it's a great example of what the European Union must do regarding say, providing services. And I agree that that directive was a very good starting point. If you think that we have different countries or different regions with different kind of regulation, after all, I think that some kind of liberalization is good. And why? Because when the Bar Association, they mentioned that they protect the citizens, I agree in some part, but at some points, they are like a lobby that they want to protect their own business. And we must realize that when they accept to protect the citizens, I agree on the position that they took. But also, if there is a minimum level of quality of service, also private companies, under my point of view, could jump to providing these kind of services. And why? Because competition is good for the market. And if we don't let that more efficient providers fight for the service and fight for the customer, the service is going down. But when we have competitions providing also legal service, I think that that is good for the customer, for the end user. And then I agree that some kind of liberalization is good for the customer. The typical narrative surrounding the European market at, or the European submarkets is typically that it's necessarily pretty segmented. It has lots of small geographic submarkets with high barriers to entry. Everyone speaks a different language. Everyone has a different legal regime and stuff like that. And there's, of course, been recent political trends of more national viewpoints in some member states. Some of these submarkets are more mature in the legal technology space than others. Would you agree with this common assessment? And do you think it's become more less true over the years. So have we moved closer together or are we growing farther apart in Europe as far as legal tech is concerned? Yeah, when we compare the European Union with the United States, a lot of time we think that United States is just one and that's not true. And in the regulation, each state has some difference. Then when we try to compare European Union with the United States, we can make more or less the same approach. Each state as own regulation, each country here in Europe, we have own regulation. But the big difference is language that you mentioned before. United States, we just have English, and here in Europe, we have more language. And for the customers, that's the problem. 
Because if we want to provide a service through Europe, we need to think about minimum five or six languages, the biggest one. And that for a service, it's the first problem. Because from different regions, Spain, France, Germany, whatever, we have a different approach as customers. And yes, I think that that it's a problem. You talked about different languages in the European Union. And one of the popular narratives is that it's harder to start a legal technology startup in Europe with an advanced software that does natural language processing because the models and the support system just isn't there as well as it is for English. Do you agree with this narrative or do you think we are nearing an age where we can also do high-level natural language processing for legal in other languages than English? Yeah, if you want to start like a legal tech company in the machine learning space or some kind of language processing, I could agree that if you don't have the database in your language, it could be a problem. But I don't think that the different kind of language is a problem to start legal tech companies in Europe. Because also could be an advantage, because in jurisdiction, if there is know that such provider that exists in another country or in the US, you just can make a copy paste and it's very easy. Then you just need to translate. Then if you are talking about the legal tech based on artificial intelligence explaining the machine learning, then you need a big database. I agree, but I don't think that it's a problem to start a legal tech company in Europe, the language. Okay. Is there any technology that you see currently that you think will transform the space over the next couple of years? Yeah, um, on the Marperno view here is we need to talk about the legal industry. And when we talk about the legal industry, I think that there are different factors that could affect. The first one is technology and the technology is just jumping. We can see what with the COVID, what has happened. That under my analysis, we should make a jump of three to five years. In my legal tech companies, we double the revenue in just 12 months. And I have been talking with a lot of my colleagues in legal tech companies around Europe, and they have seen the same. The legal tech companies that were doing correctly, that has the right technology, we are in the ramp to just like a rocket to go up, up, up. Then the technology is going to be the first disruptor that already exists. The digital signature is an example. The online trial, there is another example. And there are a lot of legal tech companies that providing service that 18 months ago didn't have a big customers. And right now, all the companies are asking for their service. The second thing or factor that I think that could affect the, the legal industry are the entrepreneurs. And also entrepreneurs that they are not lawyers. And for me, that it's very relevant. You must understand that the legal industry is like the travel industry, is like the financial industry. And if some entrepreneurs see that there is a business opportunity is going to try to conquer that part of the cake that some years before were for the lawyers. And now the entrepreneurs outside the legal industry are eating part of our cake. And the third part is the financial investors. The legal industry also is receiving a lot of money, a lot of money from investors that they are not lawyers. And those investors that they are the big players, the, the big funds, they see that the legal industry could be an opportunity. Then what is the map? 
We have technology that we have seen that disrupting the practice. The second one is that people from outside the legal sector is jumping inside the sector, the entrepreneurs. And the third factor is the money, the investors. And I think that these three elements are making the big changes right now. I see that, though I wonder what has the biggest impact on innovation right now. You argue that there is innovation through pure force of capital. We have talked a lot about technology, but there is also business model innovation. And these could happen at different stages in the market, and they could also happen simultaneously. But I wonder if you look at the European space right now, where do you see the vast majority of innovation happening? Is it in the business model case or rather tech-driven? I would say that the big disruption of the big innovation is just on the business side. It's just applying technology that already exists to solve a problem. I would not say that the big innovation is like discovering a new kind of machine learning to solve some kind of problem. That it's very easy and it's already been done for companies like my own company, that we are already using machine learning to solve some problems. And I don't think that that it's gonna be like the big disruption. I see that the big innovation in the legal tech industry here is gonna be just applying a business model to solve legal problems. And the new generation of customers, they don't want to go to visit a law firm. They just want to solve the problem online through a mobile phone. And the companies are the entrepreneurs or the law firms who could provide the solution through the mobile phone. That is going to be the innovation because a lot of legal services can be provided through a mobile phone. And then what happened with the money? I have read just a few hours ago that rocket lawyers in the United States have received a new investment that it's more than 200 millions. That is a very big amount. More than 200 millions from that rocket lawyer is going to receive. What does it mean? That means acceleration. Acceleration is like there are a lot of legal tech companies that already exist in the States and also in Europe that they are growing very, very fast and they need more investment to just grow in more fast and provide more service. And the problem here is that a lot of lawyers and a lot of law firms, they don't realize that these kind of service are taking part of the all business. And for me, the innovation is not applying a, a big disruptive technology. It's just solving problems through technology that nowadays can be solved very easy. Rocket Lawyer is an interesting case because it has long been regarded as a B2C company, but it also serves small and medium-sized companies. And that is a pattern that we have seen emerge in the market where quite often the B2C market is leading, at least in many European countries, and then slowly B2B catches up as well. So what is your take on that? Is that a natural phenomenon or is that something that could also happen in reverse? And where is the heat in these two markets in Europe right now? Yeah, you must think as an entrepreneur or, or a creator of a new service that when you create the new web page or the new app and you just put that service ready to be used online, that if the service look good and you just provide what you promise, that user is going to be your cheerleader. It's going to be your fan. It's going to be the, the customer who is going to promote your service and it's going to use it more and more and more. The first user is like the early adopters. Then we have the, the customers that we could see that it's business to consumer. I agree on that. But sometimes these consumers are employees. And what happens is that we sell something to an employee that 
he or she is using the service inside the company. And we don't sell directly to the company. We sell through the employee. That is what it's called B2E2B. And then what happens is that the company directly buys to you. And what you mentioned, the track record of a rocket lawyer, that first of all customers, then small business, and then just corporation, that is a trend. We also, in Derecho.com, that we have more than half a million customers in Spain and also in Portugal, we see the same trend. First of all, we have citizens, then we have professionals, then we have employees, then we have companies, then we have administration of public companies, and that is a trend, absolutely. So I'd like to pick up on what you mentioned last, which is the public sector clients. In many countries, I'm personally not seeing as high an adoption rate as in the private industry. Do you think that is necessarily so, or is that the next wave of demand that will follow up? I think that it's a strategic investment for a country. You must provide a good, easy, cheap, and fast service to relation between the customers or the citizens and the administration. And then the Nordic, like the Baltic countries, they have discovered this. And I think that the public sector sometimes, because they don't have a competitor, they don't provide the quality of service to the citizens that must be provided. And that is a problem because make your country less competitive. And we can see that once a country provides more and cheapest, fast and affordable service, today's citizens, like for example, how is the cost to incorporate a company or how long it takes to incorporate a company? That could be just a measure to see if that government is making it correctly in a digital way of work. And also it's an opportunity because if your government is not providing the service correctly, there are a lot of private companies and also a lot of law firms that does the work that the government is not doing. What does it mean? When you have a very complicated form to fill up for asking for a night or whatever, then you need a lawyer. And that is what a lot of lawyers are doing. They are earning money because the government is not providing the service in easy and uh, in a correct way. Then what I see here that when a country put a lot of regulation and make it very difficult to do the digital uh, transactions or digital procedures, that it's a, a problem for the country. And those countries that provide a very easy digital service online, it's an opportunity for that country. Going back to the different sub-markets of legal technology, one of them being the public sector, as we just talked about, and one of them being B2B solutions, and one of them being B2C solutions. What we talked about earlier was that there is a shift with people starting out at B2C and going, segueing into B2B. And now my question would be, what's driving this development? And maybe, for example, if it is capital that people say, well, if it's a B2C company, it has a higher multiple. That's why we will fund it. And you can go to B2B later because that doesn't have as big of a multiple as having many end customers in the B2C market. How can we exploit that for growing government and public sector solutions? Yeah. First of all, we need to understand that being an entrepreneur, it has different stages. The, the first stage is when you just begin and it's very difficult to start and you have some kind of problems that they are very different when you jump to another stage that 
you are profitable and you have a lot of customers. And there is the third stage when you want to grow very, very fast and then you raise capital and you have the investors. Then when we talk about the creation of a new services that, that could be created by entrepreneurs, by companies, by law firms, by administration, there are different stages. And we must realize that each stage it has different kind of problems. The first thing is that what is the motivation to create or provide a service? And what kind of motivation do you have to provide the solution? And when I talk with another people that ask me, okay, Marti, I want to become an entrepreneur, as you have done, the first thing is that, okay, you must love what you want to do. And if you think that you are going to make a lot of money, I think that is not a correct driver for you. Because becoming an entrepreneur, it's like having a lot of problems. It's like running out of money, having a lot of problems with the regulation and having problems with customers. And the motivation to create a new service, if you want to create as a private company or a private law firm or whatever, it's like, first of all, is you want to solve a problem and you love that problem and you want to solve because it's your motivation. Then if you are just an administration, you don't have that motivation. <laughs> Probably the motivation is that you want to provide better service for your citizens. And that is, and you must start the project like having a roadmap, making it public, and that it takes a lot of time and also a lot of money. Then the approach is very different. When you become a serial entrepreneur, I promise you that you can create a business in 24 hours or in less than 24 hours because you know how to create the service, you know how to build a team. And it's very easy to have what we call the minimum viable product. If any one of the, the audience that is listening to us, that they don't know the concept of minimum viable product, there is a very interesting book that it's called The Lean Startup. That I strongly recommend that explain you how to start in a small way. And it's the way that a lot of entrepreneurs we do is start in a very small way and try to see if the market is accepting or not or product or service. But if you try to do that from the, the public administration, it's, it's very different. It's very difficult because, as I mentioned, you need a, a document that you may, must to make it public. You need some approvals. And for me, it's... It's more difficult to do that from inside administration. There are amazing examples that some administration that they are doing very, very good. But for me, it's more difficult. Also, I think that there are a lot of interesting books that not only for the legal tech audience. Also, also if you want to become an entrepreneur, I think that there are some books that they are very interesting. That There is one that it's called Zero to One from Peter Thiel. This one that it's called The, the Lean Startup that also is very interesting. And I think that you must read a lot of this kind of entrepreneurs. And also learning to how to manage a company because we as a lawyers, I don't know. I, I was in the, in the university a long time ago, but one signature or one practice that I miss is management because we don't receive management teaching. And we in the in the master that, that we have, we have some signature about management. And we, for example, explain how to manage companies or projects using the methodology, what it's called OKRs, Objective and Care Results. Then to launch a new product or new service, it's very different if you are from a private, a small entrepreneur or a, a public company. I'm glad you bring up education as all three of us working at educational institutions and consider ourselves thinking a lot about what to teach the next generation of lawyers. And you have alluded that business skills are important. I wanted to connect this to what we just discussed about public offerings and the government sector, because traditionally lawyers play an important role in public administration. Many higher up positions are held by lawyers. So if we want the public sector to be more innovative, changing the mindset and changing the skill set of lawyers 
might be a good way to start. So how would you define our task as legal educators in this new environment? In a nutshell, what are the skills that we have to teach the next generation of lawyers? Yeah, I think that you make the point. The skills are the most relevant. First of all, understand which must be taught. Because now we have internet and the knowledge is not the asset. Knowing all the laws is not the asset. And we must realize this because like five, 10 years or 20 years ago, the most important thing is know all the codes, know all the laws, know all the articles. And nowadays, a lot of the tribunals that and a public employee must pass, like only have the memory of these codes. And for me, it's very stupid approach. You mentioned that what is the future of legal education and, and you perfectly say that there are the skills and which kind of skills we must teach. First of all, it's management, because if you work with a team of three, you must manage a people. If you work in a team of two, you must manage a people. And if you grow in a law firm, you must manage people. And I think that management could make the difference. The second skill is like technology. If you learn technology correctly, can you give you superpowers? And there are, as I mentioned, some bar association in the United States that ask you as a lawyer every X years pass an exam to show that you know the digital tools. And that is very important because they want to protect the citizen. And the citizen must perfectly understand that the lawyer can correctly use the digital technology. And the third part that I would say that as a skill, you must understand business. Because if you are in a law firm, it's a business. And some law schools, they don't teach anything about business. And then become lawyers that they don't know what's going on in, in a business market. Then I will mention the first is management, the second one is technology, and the third is business. And when I talk about technology, a lot of people, the next question could be, I don't know, that if the lawyers, we must learn how to code. I would not say that we all must learn how to code, but we must understand how the code works. What does it mean? We need to understand what code could make. We don't need to build the software but we must understand how the software works. And if we understand how the software works and is made, we can imagine and just explain to another person that we want to develop a service and how the software could help us. It's, for example, machine learning. We as lawyers, we don't need to know how to code a machine learning, but probably we need to learn a little bit about how to use TensorFlow. Because if we have a lot of contracts, probably we will need to use a software that could help us to understand this software. Then management, technology, and business. These are the skills that we must learn as a law students. I think it's an interesting idea to explore the depth in which future lawyers need to understand these. And I will a little bit challenge you on the TensorFlow example, because if you want to work productively with these applications, It takes a fairly long time to learn it. And while I'm sure that there are some future lawyers that have the mindset, the skill set, and the time to develop these skills to work productively, most probably don't. So if we think of that majority of people, how do we help them to understand? Is the goal for them as well to really be able to apply the technology or is there some intermediate level for which we can go? And how do you solve that issue of how deep to teach in your Coursera class, for example, or in your master program? Yeah, I think that this technology that we mentioned, that TensorFlow, it's a survey provided by Google, 
that helps you to use machine learning. And machine learning could help you to understand a lot of documents and make conclusion by their own, the software. Then the question is, if we all the lawyers must understand how to use TensorFlow or the competitors that could be from Amazon, from Microsoft or from IBM, we need to understand the first thing is what kind of service or solution this technology could bring to us. Because a lot of lawyers, they don't know this. The first thing is that we need to understand what this technology could help us. Then we need to understand to who we might ask to apply. The first thing could be, okay, we have a technology guy inside our law firm. The second could be the junior that it's a freaky and know how to code and use this technology. I remember when I started working as a lawyer in that big law firm that I work, that some partners called me because I know how to use internet. And could you imagine how that uh, you have some better skill because you know how to use internet? Then you could have a better skill in, in the law firm is if you know how to use TensorFlow because you can make the work that 10 lawyers make in one week in just a few hours. And I think that this technology is going to be more easy to use each year. We must understand that we are at the beginning of this technology. We are just three or four years as a commercial a software as a service technology. Then these TensorFlow solutions is going to be easy to use in the next two or three or five years because the company could that provide an easy way to use this technology is going to be a very good example of to apply. It's like the word processor. At the beginning, we have the old processor. And after Microsoft bring the word and the office, it wasn't amazing. I think that it's going to be the same. Going back to teaching, you said management, technology, and business. I was wondering how in detail you would teach these subjects, because I think all three subjects lend themselves either to general instruction, where just someone talks to you about these subjects and gives you case studies, or they lend themselves to hands-on study, where you can experience all three together by doing a project or something. Do you have any experiences maybe from the master's program that you do that tie in with this and something that worked and something that didn't? Yeah, for me, it's one of the skills that I love to develop on my own because it's one of the skills that I need to learn to grow as a manager, as a team leader. And I think that once that you understand the, the capabilities that the good management could give to you and also for your project, is one of the, of the skills that you want to learn more each day. The first thing that I recommend is, is read some books. And, and my recommendation here is High Output Management from Andy Grove. He was the CEO of Intel and explained in a very easy way how he managed the companies. The second book that I would recommend, that, that book is bigger than the first one. It's called Principles from Ray Dalio. Ray Dalio is a self-made man that he's running one of the biggest hedge funds of the world. And I strongly recommend this book. It's, it's a long book, but could give you the how a person that has achieved so amazing results, how he thinks. And he's a very open-minded. And when you discover that the approach of, the, of these amazing managers, that they are very open-minded, you learn a lot. Then how you can learn this? The first thing, be very curious with this and read a lot. The second thing, okay, you can practice and where. I would suggest to just try to learn in a practice, like in a short course. You don't need to be in a in like an, an MBA to, to learn how to manage it. You can just use a, a short course where you can learn the basics. And also online, you can find a lot of information. Here, the, if you are talking about management, my recommendation, as I mentioned, I strongly recommend you to read about OKRs, Objective and Care Results. I don't know if we have a little bit more time, but I will mention that Google, from the first day, 
they run the company with this methodology, OKRs, objective and key result. And also I would mention that Spotify run the company with this methodology. I will mention that the Melissa and Bill Gates Foundation is also run with this methodology. Then if those amazing and successful projects are run with this methodology, why not a legal tech company or a law firm can be run with this kind of methodology? I think that methodology, business management and methodology to manage the companies is one of the skills that we must learn each day. I see that. And I think it's very helpful for people that you provide some concrete examples of what they can try to see whether it works for them and helps them advance on their individual journey. I'm curious that what events, what programs, what other material besides books would you recommend to someone who is young and new to the space and wants to explore this, is curious, but finds an ocean of material out there? What would your picks be online and also in offline events? Yeah, I will recommend from management. These are the books, high output management. I will put an, a mention an example, Anderson and Horowitz, that it's one of the biggest venture capital firms in Silicon Valley. When they invest in a new company, what they give to the founder, to the CEO, is this book, High Output Management. Then if one of the most successful investor firms, that it's Anderson and Horowitz, recommend and give this book, that it's a management book to their founders, then wow, that is probably the starting point. And after this, you're going to be more curious about learning about OKRs. If you go to, if you search on Google OKRs by Google, Google have done one thing that it's sharing this methodology online. And they have a lot of examples and they have a lot of templates that you can use by your own. By using OKRs is a little bit harder and complicated. Also, You can read a lot of blogs about management on or tips that, for example, there is some methodology that it's agile, a lean methodology that it's used by a very kind of business. And it's very useful because it helps you to move very, very fast. What I recommend is read these books, read some blogs and be very curious because you are going to see that there is a lot of information online. And I will point the blog from Google that explains the OKRs. Now I'm settled with your book recommendations and I want to take it further. One way that I would recommend is, of course, Buzerius Legal Tech Essentials under buseri.us slash essentials. But I know that you have programs that are longer. So if people are curious about finding out more about your master program, for example, how can they do it? Okay, yes. If you want to go farther with legal tech, we designed a master that it was like four or five years ago when we started thinking about this master. We start program that it was called Legal Bridge to Silicon Valley 10 years ago. It was a problem that you spend 10 days in Silicon Valley where we bring you through a lot of different kind of companies, institutions, and we learn who were the contacts, who were the people who were developing this new sector that was legal tech. And after this, we realized that there is a new space that the people who are lawyers or the legal sector, they don't know how to approach. And it's the legal tech, because what is really legal tech? Under my point of view, legal tech is the mix about business, technology, and law. And then we design a program that has business, that has technology and also has law. We think that law is relevant, then you must learn the basics of the digital law. That is not a master of digital law, but you need to learn the basics. Then you need to learn how to use technology. We teach technology. We teach you how to use, for example, TensorFlow. We make what we call a challenge. 
with some big institutions like Banco Santander, like Google, and like Thomson Reuters. And we make a challenge with these companies. And we collaborate with professionals inside the, these companies. And they put to the students a legal challenge that must be solved with technology. And part of the master is develop this solution. Then it's a master that you have the hands on to make things. And the third part after law, after technology, is management and business. Because it's relevant for the students to understand which kind of service are correct to provide online, which kind of business model are the business models that are working online and in the digital business. These are the three areas that we explain in the master in a very deep approach. And one thing that it's very relevant, almost all the teachers are professionals of the industry. They are not like only teachers. No, no, they are professionals that teach. And these are the persons who are like in the state of the art on the, in the, on the industry. And for us, it's very relevant to say that because they are the professionals who are working already from a long time ago in the legal tech industry. That is the approach. Then what is the outcome that I get when I pass the master? I think that the outcome that you get is like, okay, I want to change my life. That is for me, it's the purpose of the master that you decide that you want to change your life because you understand that there is a new reality that you can be part of. And this is, for me, the, the main purpose of the master, that help the legal professionals to understand that there is a new reality and teach them the skills to be part of it. We talked a lot about education, and education is a big part of being an entrepreneur and finding the right problem to solve. But there is also another side to it, which is finding and meeting the right people to employ the right co-founders, the right investors. Do you have any suggestions or tips for young lawyers or law students or people generally interested in the legal technology space on how to find the right and meet the right people? Yes, we don't have a right answer. The answer is, it depends on you. There are people that can create projects by their own and they can be like a solo entrepreneurs. There are people that they have been creating business with a friend from a long time ago and they are very good friends and also they make an amazing project. And then here, it depends on you. Based on my experience, I have created business with friends of mine. I have a friend of mine that we have created probably three or four companies since we were in the high school. And then when we have created the project, we decide if we want to grow the, this project or not. The first investors, in my case, is what we call friends, family, and fools. Those people who believe in you and, and want to put money in your project. This is the friends, family, and fools. And why fools? Because probably they are going to lose the money. It's a big responsibility from you because you ask money to your family, but a lot of time you lose this money. Then here is, okay, decide with who you want to write this amazing uh, journey because it's going to be very difficult and you are going to pass a lot of difficulties on the journey. It's going to say, okay, we run out of money. That it's very, very common. We must to decide to change the project. That also is a very common. The first thing that you think that you're going to solve, after all, you realize that there is no solution for that and you must pivot the, the project and change the project. Then you must feel comfortable with that person to decide, okay, we are going to change. Also, you must trust in each other if you are two or three, because each one must take decisions by their own and you must trust with the decision that that people made. Then the answer here is we don't have a one right answer. 
There are a lot of answers and it depends on you. In my experience, I love creating projects with people because you can discuss, you can make like a ping pong discussions about the business model and that's it. Then deciding with investors. Okay, when we talk about investors that it's a different topic, I think that there is some approach that it's not correct. When you see in the press that, okay, that legal tech project receives a lot of money, the investment, that also is a big problem for the entrepreneur because now at this point is the zero point. What I mean with the zero point, when you read in the, in the press that a new legal tech company receives money, you say, wow, that's a big success. No, <laughs> now the entrepreneur has a big responsibility to invest this money. Then I have raised money from professional investors like in a round. And my suggestion is try to do not use this kind of money, because when you use this kind of money, you are losing part of the company. Then be very careful when you decide to take that, to take money as an investor, as a partner, or if you could just use your own money, because if you use your own money, then the company is yours. You don't have investors because when you bring a professional investors to the project, there is a, a big problem that you need to probably sign a shareholder agreement. If you are a lawyer, you know what is a shareholder agreement. If you are not a lawyer or you are a lawyer that never have heard about shareholder agreement, a shareholder agreement, it's a contract between the partners of the company. It's not the bylaws. The bylaws is like the public rules. And the private rules inside the company is the shareholder agreement. And the professional investors, if they put a lot of money in your company, they're going to put a lot of rules and a lot of obligations to you. Then investors decide if you really need money or not, and then decide the investors, what kind of investor, and make your due diligence about the investors and decide which kind of people is going to put money and going to become your partners and ask other entrepreneurs if they like these investors or not. Well said. Thank you, Marty. Lots of great suggestions in there. It's truly been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure also sharing this knowledge with all of you. And also, if any one of you want to contact me, my email is marty at derecho.com or through LinkedIn. And if I can help any one of you, it's going to be a pleasure for me. And that's a wrap for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions or comments for me or Larry, let us know on Twitter. Our handles are at Son of the Fun and at Lord's F. See you next time.